Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL and available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson. And if you're checking us out on one of the podcast listening platforms for the first time or listening to us on WKXL, we hope that you will find your way to the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using for your podcasts. We really appreciate all the new subscribers we've had recently. And there's been a bunch. So thank you. And whether or not you've subscribed, we really would appreciate if you'd leave us a rating and review. It really does help us out. The saga of the fall of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo in some ways looks like what journalists call a man bites dog story, something that happens far too often, so often that it almost escapes our attention. It does seem hardly new that awful behavior and sexual harassment by a male politician comes to light and ends a once lofty career. But there's a lot going on under the surface here, both in terms of this particular case and the overall trajectory of how we think about and treat these kinds of political scandals and sexual harassment by politicians. So to dig into that question and look under that surface, we have Lindsay Beierstein, who is an award-winning investigative journalist who covers legal affairs, healthcare, and politics for a great publication that I write for occasionally, full disclosure, called The Editorial Board, also writes for Alternet. She's also an award-winning documentary filmmaker. She's a judge for the Sidney Hillman Foundation. She's sort of a Renaissance woman, and she has written some really outstanding analysis of what's gone on with the fall of Andrew Cuomo, and we're really happy to welcome you to Beyond Politics. Thanks so much for having me. Well, it's delightful to have you. Not so delightful to talk about this topic. It, it does have a little bit of a Groundhog Day quality to it when it comes to male politicians engaging in this kind of behavior and seeing their career come to an end. Now, it, it's before diving into some of the ways that this type of situation have changed in recent years. Let's look at the specifics of what happened here, because there was a very long, exhaustive report issued by the Attorney General of the state of New York, Letitia James. And most listeners probably didn't have the time to dig into all of it. You did dig into it. Um, so that report, which you covered in your piece on the editorial board, published on August 4th, how damning was it? Um, did it leave any doubt? as the governor later alleged, about what he did here? And is there criminal liability to it? What's the impact of this report? The James report is damning because it's so well corroborated. They, they have 11 victims, and many of, these, many of these incidents were actually witnessed. So they had eyewitnesses to Cuomo touching people inappropriately. They had contemporaneous collaboration, corroboration, rather. They had emails and texts, women texting their best friends, texting their colleagues at work, texting their moms and dads saying, you know, such and such happened with the governor and I'm really upset about it. Sometimes these things, some of the 
some of the events actually happened in public. One of them happened in a rope line that a woman who worked for an energy company was standing waiting to shake the governor's hand. And he reached out and traced the letters of her T-shirt across her breasts with his hand. And they were able to track down her friend who had seen it all happen. And the, But one of the things that's so interesting and effective is the use of narrative. That the, the James report was able to paint a picture of a governor out of control, of someone who's reckless and vindictive and abusing his official power to further sexual harassment. And what it made really clear was that there's no real boundary between what he's willing to do to the women around him sexually and what he's willing to do to the entire state. It's I, I wish that our listeners on radio and podcast could see the visual of sort of the, the head in hands that that narrative creates for me. And I, I, I'm assuming for a lot of people listening, it's, it's so shocking. And as you say, so reckless, it's so, it's so flagrant is I, 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 I want to follow up on the last point you raised there, which is it, it, it's kind of like when you read about behavior like this, it's like hearing a clock chime for a 13th time. It's not only wrong in itself, it calls everything that underlies it into question. If he's engaging in this kind of reckless, flagrant behavior with no, not even an instinct of self-preservation politically, does it call into question his larger pattern of behavior as a governor of one of the largest states in the United States? Absolutely. One of the things that the report made clear was the extent to which Cuomo's inner circle was absolutely complicit in managing and excusing and obscuring all of his predatory behavior. So there were documented examples of women who came forward to their bosses in the executive chamber saying this happened with the governor and they didn't pass it on to the appropriate authorities. There are examples of Cuomo's staff doing things like uh, bending the rules for the state trooper on his protective detail. He ran into a woman on a bridge during an event who was a uh, state trooper and she um, she chatted with him. He found her attractive, apparently. And he got his underlings to bend the rules to join his protective detail. And there's a paper trail of him doing this. And there are multiple staffers within the state police and also on the other side who they you know, they were able to confirm that, that they executed this all for him. And there's just constantly his closest advisor just running interference. And one of the, one of the victims had a really great quote. She said, everything was set up to feed the predator. And it's just so clearly true when you read the report. It kind of reminds you of Harvey Weinstein, that kind of modus operandi where you've got these yes men who have surrounded an extremely powerful and vindictive person and have created a toxic environment amongst themselves. And everything is just geared towards indulging this abuser and perpetuating his, his offenses and crimes and victimizations. Do you draw a connection between everything you just described and that culture of enablement, uh, of staff enablement. And by the way, as a former staffer, I, 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 I sort of, I, I don't know, I, I sort of cringe at this kind of setup. And yet you can sort of see how staffers with a lot of loyalty could almost delude themselves. But I want to ask about, is there a connection here to another recent scandal in New York involving the governor, which involved fudging and in some 
ways making up numbers when it came to COVID deaths, especially in nursing homes. There was another incident where there was bad behavior, potentially criminal behavior, and it seemed to be undertaken in this complex interaction between what was going on and coming from the governor versus what was happening from willing staff who were trying to bend things to protect and enable the governor. Is am I am I kind of going too far by making that connection or do you see it? I would draw I would I would say that there's a direct connection that there is this culture within the executive chamber of Cuomo's aphorics just of abuse, of threats, of lying to get what they want. And whether that's bullying members of the media, whether that's threatening members of their own staff, whether that's covering, you know, refusing to report up the chain of command when there's harassment, all of this stuff, it's the same pattern of behavior. And it's a culture where that level of abuse is valorized and normalized. And so nobody's allowed to stand up to the governor for his sexual advances and nobody's allowed to stand up to the governor when the when he's doing something else wrong, like fudging nursing home data. I'm not going to put you in the position of becoming a psychoanalyst. Um, that's that's uh, tough for anyone, but you are a, a very sharp-eyed observer of this entire situation. And you covered the non-apology press conference that the governor had uh, just over a week ago as we record this, in which he sort of said, I'm the hero here and the victim. I'm sorry if I offended anyone, which is, I mean, look, our listeners know this is like the lamest form of apology. You know, if you, if, if you really anger your spouse and you're the, you're the bad actor here and you say, well, I'm sorry if you were offended, your, your spouse, I think, has a legal right to re-up the argument. I mean, it's, so it's this lame non-apology apology that also doesn't give an inch in terms of admitting, hey, you know what? I, I messed up here. I, I did some bad stuff. Now, I guess the question is, sometimes when you see politicians engage in, in this kind of thing, it's because behind the scenes, their lawyers are in their ear saying, do not admit fault. Do not admit, do not take blame. Do not say that you did something wrong, you could open yourself up to civil liability. You could open yourself up to criminal liability. So when you covered that press conference and you heard these things, were you hearing that kind of legal caution? Or is he living in a dream world of total denial and fantasy? I think it's some of both. And it was really interesting how they set up that event, that they got his lawyer out to give the preliminary talk. And she comes out and she's not his criminal defense attorney, but she comes out talking like a criminal defense attorney, trying to pick little holes in exactly what date Cuomo allegedly cupped a woman's breast under her blouse. You know, you can just feel the raising of reasonable doubt. And then Cuomo comes on and admits to what he absolutely can't deny. So, for instance, groping the stomach of trooper number one, because that was that was witnessed by a senior investigator from the state police walking directly behind him. There was no way he could get out of it. So his his version was, oh, well, I don't remember. I must have happened the way she says, but I just touch everybody. I touch all the troopers that way. And that, to me, kind of perked my ears up in terms of trying to get around gender discrimination, saying I do this to everybody. But I also think that um, I also think that there is an element of genuine massive entitlement that he has this feeling that 
He is entitled to other people's bodies, to other people's time, to other people's loyalties, to other people's criminal behavior on his behalf. And it's, it is genuinely hard for him to process that he might be at fault in all this. It's so interesting that you say that because I've always felt that people mis, misunderstand or, or misinterpret the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Because I think what that's really saying is we give ourselves these self-justifications. We tell ourselves these stories that we are entitled to do certain things because we have good intentions, because it's part of it's it's like the Harry Potter thing. It's for the greater good. And you can I, I, I've worked for a number of different politicians, and I'm not saying that any of them engaged in bad behavior or certainly not not this kind of bad behavior. But when I've seen it, when I've seen it among politicians, it does seem like it always starts with a sense of entitlement, a sense of I am allowed to do this because I am working so hard or I am providing so much good for the people I represent or it's 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 a step along the road to the greater good. So I what I kind of hear you saying here is maybe over time, Governor Cuomo, former Governor Cuomo, got himself so wrapped up in that kind of narrative that he could no longer even see the difference. And it became it, it, it became something where maybe it's like a George Costanza thing. It's not a lie if you believe it. Like maybe he really thinks to himself, oh, this cupping and tracing and all of this like blatant behavior it's just the stuff I do with all my staff. And I think the electorate bought into this kind of narrative too, that Cuomo was an abrasive guy. Cuomo was a bully. We, we knew all this stuff. Nobody read this report and thought, oh my, not Andy. It was an encapsulation of what we've, we've always known about this guy. And yet we we're willing to let it go because of this mythology of, well, he's an absolute moral disaster, but he gets things done. And but we he could, gets but, things done. And we can debate about whether he actually did get things done or whether he gets things done, as well as other Democratic governors who aren't constantly disgracing themselves. But I think that there was just a tremendous amount of enablement on behalf of Democrats in New York, because we bought into the mystique of this, this strongman bully leadership model. And I think that there's a huge sea change underway right now in terms of people coming to question that model. You've got a deep split where you've got Republicans who are going deeper and deeper into the worship of one man and l'état c'est moi and Mike makes right. And you've got Democrats saying, no, we reject that whole model of leadership. It's not just about whether it's okay to touch your staffers because although it's obviously not, it's about that entire way of operating, that entire relationship to power. And I think that's a really good and exciting thing. Now, that's that's a really fascinating thing, because you're right. There is this mythos of sort of the abrasive, get it done type. We see it in our kind of pop culture depictions of leadership. We also see it in our history. I mean, probably the greatest set of leadership biographies ever written are the series on LBJ by Robert Caro, which depict in almost nauseating detail how abusive he was. And it's not like that was a secret. It was known and it was sort of part of the image. It was sort of part of he's gruff, he's a jerk, but he gets things done. It's it's the 
he's effective type thing. And maybe you need that kind of a hard edge in order to survive, especially in a political culture like New York. But let me ask you about the other side of that coin, because we kind of teased this a moment ago. This is not a secret. And as you said, boy, that's funny. You know, no one in New York reacted with, oh, no, not Andy. He's he's such a nice guy. I mean, this was not a secret. People who worked in politics and people who covered politics like you, there, there was a longstanding reputation that he was a bully, that he was abusive. And there were also widespread rumors about the way he particularly treated female staff in his orbit. And so I guess the question is, is there a broader responsibility here among leaders in his party, especially other political leaders in New York, perhaps even his staff who may have been the victims of some abuse, but as you say, there were enablers there among his staff. Do you see a broader circle of responsibility here? And should there have been some form of intervention earlier? I, my, my philosophy is if you see something, say something, just as a general mode of living. Well, it says and being it on a the New York person. City subway, yeah. right? Like yeah. that's the slogan on the subway. So yeah. And, but on the other hand, I'm not sure how effective an intervention would have been because it's so deep into who Cuomo is and how he operates that I think what has to happen is that kind of introspection and discussion about what we actually want out of leadership so that people like Cuomo don't rise to the highest levels. Once he became governor, he'd been doing this for a long time. I don't know about this, you know, sexual, but that way of operating was already ingrained in him. And we had chosen him despite or because, depending on who you ask, that whole vibe. I think what our deepest responsibility is, is to carefully and clearly and humanely about what we really want out of leadership, what it really means to be a good leader and to be effective and to be a decent person and to embody the values of the party and serve the state. Part of what I hear you saying in here is that there's almost a frog in slowly warming water till it gets to a boil type quality to all this, because look, as a political character, this is a politician who literally grew up in politics. His father was the governor. He was involved in his father's campaigns. He served in a White House administration under former President Bill Clinton. And of course, we all know that Bill Clinton had his own historic scandal over an affair with an intern. He became governor. Andrew uh, Andrew Cuomo became governor because another governor had to leave office over a different type of scandal, but not so far removed, involving prostitution. He could not have been more forewarned. And it it sounds like part of the thread of this that you're picking up here is, in a way, the fact that he should have been so forewarned, that there were all of these signposts along the way to where he ended up. It in itself almost created a dynamic that landed him where he was, because at each step of the road, the fact that he continued to get away with it and it continued to worsen probably fed his sense of, I can get away with anything here. Absolutely. And I feel like a lot of this kind of weird, one of his defenses was, I touch everyone. And in some sense, it's true. This guy uses physical touch as a tool of power and control, whether it's overtly sexual or not. But he's always getting up in people's faces and grabbing them and touching them and, you know, 
asserting physical dominance. And sometimes I think that's tinged with subjective eroticism on his part, like he's getting off on it. And sometimes I just think it's the way he is in the world. He's just fundamentally a bully who takes up space, who impinges, who pushes the envelope. And we all see it. And so far, we've been accepting of it. And I, I really hope that's going to stop. Right before the break, Lindsay, you were saying that he had a longstanding reputation for being very physically intrusive with the people around him, both male and female. And there may have been a sexualized overtone to his physical interactions with female staff around him. But this is someone who crossed lines, crossed boundaries. And I want to broaden the discussion a little bit to another well-known politician who people I think like a lot more and does not have a reputation as a bully, does not have a reputation as a bad guy. And that's Joe Biden. Joe Biden went through his own reckoning with crossing some physical boundaries, brushing the hair of people he was working with, um, inappropriate hugs, a little too much physical contact. He eventually made it through those allegations, those revelations, and in part probably because he does have such a baseline different reputation. Do you think that was the main factor in the difference here? Was it also kind of the, the, the type of behavior itself that was alleged? Is it sort of the way we think about different categories of politicians? Why do you, what do you ascribe that difference to? I think the difference, one of the big differences was the actual behavior itself, that what Biden was doing seemed, didn't seem to be premeditated, didn't seem to be furtive or malicious or surreptitious, he didn't seem to be engaging people around him to cover up his misdeeds or lying about them or anything like that. It was that he was being rude and entitled and inappropriate, but it wasn't part of some larger scheme that anybody knew of to it wasn't part of it, it, You couldn't tie it, especially to any kind of official misconduct. That was a big part of it. And also Biden, I think you're right that Biden does have a well-earned reputation of being a respectable, decent guy who has been conspicuous about following the sort of the ethical norms of his office. Whatever you think about his larger vision for politics and whether his policies are right, he's a guy who has colored inside the lines in terms of how he's treated his staff, what kind of employer, and thousands of people have probably worked for him at this point. And in general, they will say he was a good and respectful boss and not toxic. And that goes a long way, I think. Right. So many former staffers coming forward, as they did at the time, to say, look, he, he's someone who's effusive physically, and standards and expectations have changed a little bit. It's not to excuse the behavior in the past. It's just that He's he's coming to grips with it. He's learning, but it's not malicious. He's not a predator of some kind. He is, as you say, very respectful. That that does seem to be a a major difference here. And yet, I, there is kind of this broader question of the overall politics on these things because when the report was issued, I was on the radio with a roundtable panel discussion as the news was breaking, and I raised the point that look. Our former president, Donald Trump, had just as bad or worse allegations lodged against him by a similar or actually higher number of victims. And he took the approach that we're increasingly seeing in politics of 
just brazen it out. Just, just say, nope, didn't happen that way. They're all liars. I don't care. You guys can go stuff it. And it it kind of sort of seemed to work. And at the same time, we saw contrastively the episode with Senator Al Franken several years ago with another New York connection since Senator Kirsten Gillibrand was one of the leaders in the Senate of asking him to step down and saying, look, we've lost confidence in you. And in that case, you had an interesting mix of he did not brazen it out. He didn't feel like he could. The behavior was certainly bad, but there was a real mix of opinion about whether it was part of a larger pattern and what the motivations were and whether this was sort of an attempt at humor run amok um, that was inappropriate, but but maybe not quite as, as malicious and obscene. Uh, to What do you make of this larger pattern of how politicians are dealing with situations like this and what sort of the public is willing to accept and get behind? I think there's now a clear point of demarcation after the Franken, after the Franken affair that the, the Democrats just don't put up with sexual harassment. The Democrats actually are serious about getting obvious predators and boundary crossers out of power, that it's not sustainable to have a career in national democratic politics and to be going around groping people. And it's a clear point of demarcation against the Republican Party. The reason that Trump and Matt Gates and those kinds of guys can just brazen out these allegations is because their electorate doesn't care. Their base doesn't care. The Democratic base does care. And, you know, and being a, an obvious sexual harasser is from now on career ending in democratic politics. And that's good. That's a milestone. I think we should celebrate that. Do you think that some of the remorse, the buyer's remorse that was clearly evident on the presidential campaign trail in 2020, this came up a lot. Boy, this was a textured conversation if ever there was one. It centered a lot around Senator Gillibrand and her role in helping to usher Senator Franken out of office. And there were Democratic power players and donors who were willing to anonymously, and in some cases on the record, say, you know what? She overstepped. We overdid it. This was too much. We should have taken a deep breath. And it, there was sort of a weird backlash about it. And then there was a backlash to the backlash about, well, wait, why are you backlashing against a woman leader who's calling this stuff out? Um, you know, and not against all the men who are still getting away with this stuff. Boy, was that a fraught thing. Do you think that that whole process that the Democratic Party went through has changed any of the thinking about future episodes, future politicians, and how they might handle this? Or do you think fundamentally the Cuomo episode shows, nope, this is a zero tolerance party for this kind of behavior? I think that it really does show that there's, I mean, politics is full of hypocrisy and inconsistency and contingency. So, and our society loves to make excuses for abusers. So I don't want to be saying that, you know, Democrats are going to be perfect from now on, or that there's not stuff still going on behind the scenes that hasn't been called out or anything like that. But I do think that in a way, Franken was kind of the high cost signal that we were going to care about this stuff, that we could, he could have brazened it out. It was, uh, there hadn't been the kind of searching investigation that Cuomo got. So we don't really know exactly how deep his misbehavior went, but it was, he was just on the edge and the Democrats decided, 
nope, this isn't sustainable. This is we can't be the party that's serious about sexual harassment and keep him. And because it hurt the Democrats so badly, it I think galvanized their image of being serious. That you know, it's a cheap signal to kick someone out who's obviously guilty, who's not a, a pillar of your party, who's not you know your charismatic leader that everyone likes. But it's an expensive signal to kick out Al Franken. And I think that gives us a lot of cred, it gives the Democratic Party a lot of cred that for having done that, for t- having taken that stand, because it was a tough stand to take. I want to, uh, lest our listeners think that you cover just this topic, just this saga, just this politician, you are uh, very prolific on a whole bunch of topics in terms of what's going on generally in politics. And I'd like to just cover a few of the other pieces that you've written recently, all really well done. I commend them to everyone. Check them out on the editorial board. They're also published on Alternet. Um, And uh, always good reads, always kind of eye-opening, like a smart take that also makes you just think a little bit differently. And it's great stuff. So speaking of Democrats kind of paying a high price and, and, and trying to figure out how to navigate an ethical dilemma, you wrote recently about one of the most curious ongoing episodes in, in politics and in democratic politics specifically, which is the sale of Hunter Biden's art. What on earth do you make of the sale of Hunter Biden's art? What's going on with it? And what do you think about it? I think that it's um, just to recap for people who haven't been following the story, Hunter, it was announced by a Soho gallery that Hunter Biden was going to have an art show coming up in the fall and uh, that his paintings were being priced somewhere between $50,000 and $500,000. And you can look these paintings up online and they're not very good. I mean, there's there's no... And I, I've talked to working artists about this and people within the gallery scene and everyone was unanimous that no, Hunter Biden did not get this show on the strength of his artistic talent or the sophistication of his portfolio, that he got it on the strength of his name and because he's a notorious guy. And so there was this whole ethical dust up with, because there's no specific rule or law that set that covers the president's adult children and whether they can sell art at a gallery in Soho that might command more money than if he didn't have the family name and various people weighed in on it. And, you know, people like you know, ethics experts like Richard Painter, and they thought this is, this is a terrible thing. You shouldn't do it. And honestly, I sort of felt like it was overblown as a scandal for the Biden administration, but they handled it in a weird way that made it seem sketchier than it had to. They decided that it was going to be a double blind kind of arrangement where Hunter Biden wouldn't know who was who was paying for his paintings, if indeed anybody bought them, so that they couldn't be currying favor with the White House. And what you'd really want in that situation is for everyone to know, to see if any of these people get meetings, if they get considerations, if they get ambassadorships or whatever, instead of this enforced cone of silence. But even even with that misstep, it just seemed like it was kind of overblown as an ethics scandal, despite being a complete own goal and terrible decision by Hunter Biden. I, that's that's the that's the phrase for it right there is it's an own goal. Do you see a connection point between the previous point you were making that in the Al Franken episode, Democrats made a strategic decision to some degree, to some degree that, look, what, maybe this behavior is on the line. Maybe he could brazen it out. 
Maybe we could excuse it. There, there are explanations here, but we're going to go zero tolerance on it because we have to lay down a marker. We have to make a stand. And politically, we have to draw a contrast here with we're about to be up against Donald Trump and there just has to be a bright line on this or we're kind of in trouble. Do you see a parallel there with the Hunter Biden situation? Because you have Donald Trump's adult children running around making, according to reports, millions and millions of dollars and in plain sight, clearly trading with, with, with no shame about it on their name. They're certainly not trading on their business skills. I mean, I think we're all clear about that. And so, um, and, and Ivanka Trump is, is not exactly Chaucer uh, when it comes to her writing. And so you have a situation where you could argue as a Democrat, hey, look, we need a bright line here because Donald Trump might run again. And if you're a Democrat and you believe that this is like, you know, an extinction level event for American democracy, if he becomes president again, we we can't afford to take chances here. Maybe someone needs, needs to whisper forcefully in the ear of the president and say, you've got to put the kibosh on this, even if it's probably a nothing burger as far as a scandal goes. I, I mean, what do you think about that connection? And is there any consideration of that? I do think that that's I, I do see a parallel. And I really wish that Joe Biden would rein in his adult son. But the problem is, I don't know how possible that is. That he's an adult. He can there's he's not breaking any laws. I'm not sure what Joe Biden could do besides disowning his son. And even then he would go and do scandalous things and people would complain about it. So I'm not sure how productive it is. If people are upset about it, I mean, they should speak their mind and, you know, lay, lay down a marker of disapproval within the party. But I'm not sure what what constructive action can come of it. Do you see a, a broader issue here with sort of the way we cover this whole issue of uh, corruption, of trading on name or advantage. There was a ton of confusion about this during the campaign when it came to things like Hunter Biden's laptop, his drug abuse and addiction, um, and his behavior versus the behavior, which was to call back to words we used earlier in the show, blatant, flagrant, um, reckless on the, on the part of the Trump children. It seems like there, there's there are clear distinctions and nuances here. So is it just sort of beyond our, our capability, our political capability to have the conversation and say, look, you know, there's no way around the fact that the relatives of famous people are going to get some advantages because they're the relatives of famous people. There's going to be interest. I mean, look, if Britney Spears went out and sold not particularly great artwork right now, it would probably sell above market value because she's a celebrity and she has a famous name. And there's just not much to be done about that. Is it sort of beyond our political capability to have that public understanding that, you know, there's a difference between that kind of thing and the kinds of direct quid pro quo style corruption that we saw from the Trump family? I think it's something that we don't like to, I think it's something that we don't like to think about how much systemic inequality there is, how much, you know, things just go your way when you're the son of a long-serving U.S. senator. And this has been a thread throughout 
Hunter Biden's life long before the art show was just he always seemed to have jobs that were just a little I mean, he had the sort of general rich people track of going through finance and lobbying. His jobs are just always a little to a lot too good for what you would expect, given who Hunter Biden is, what is what is correct. And it was, there was always the suspicion that Joe had somehow done something. But they, in all these years, nobody ever managed to pin anything specific. And I think that's just a function of how much privilege just automatically adheres to being the son of a U.S. senator and how many people will give you things and pay attention to you and do what you want just because they hope you might get some special, you might, your presence might attract some special consideration, even if the people in power don't actually do anything concrete. We also, before I, before I let you go, I, I would be remiss not to cover some of your other recent writing on Republican voting restrictions in the states and the panel investigating the insurrection on January 6th. Let's turn to the insurrection first, because this is as weird a story in a way in American politics as I can remember. You have an actual insurrection, a dictionary definition of an insurrection. And yet, first of all, you have Republicans arguing the definition of the turn, almost that like legalistic way that Andrew Cuomo's lawyer was coming out and, you know, nitpicking the dates. It's like, well, does Webster really call this a de- an insurrection? And does it apply here? I mean, really? And and yet, and you also have this like, it, it's hard to think of a bigger turning point moment in the history of the United States, an, an armed violent attack on the capital of the United States we still talk about the attack in the War of 1812, and yet the panel investigating it is sort of not in the news. Now, maybe some of that may be the, the August doldrums, but what are you seeing when it comes to the ongoing work of that panel and the coverage of the work of that panel and kind of the reckoning we should be having, having and yet we're seemingly not having with the events of January 6th. Last I checked, I think the panel was was in investigative mode that they they're actually sort of doing the behind the scenes stuff now that might have changed since I last wrote on this, but it, there was sort of a scheduled you know, spade work period essentially that they were they were engaged in, but what I'm seeing is just so much denialism, so much revisionist history from Republicans, just absolute blatant gaslighting of the population trying to say it wasn't real, it didn't matter, it was Antifa, it was the FBI. It's just shameful and depressing, and I feel like it's become it's being rolled into denialism around vaccines and and this this conspiratorial ethos of Republican politics that's just getting out of control. Last year, there was a lot of commentary about a moment on CNN during the Black Lives Matter protests. There was a report which had a chyron over the bottom saying most protests peaceful. And the image on the screen was a reporter in front of a blazing building. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the right wing commentary on this with some justification was to use your colorful phrase from earlier, which I loved. This was an own goal by the liberal media, right? This was like, what a self-own to have this moment of like, boy, things are so peaceful. This is so great. By the way, this building's on fire. Don't worry about it. 
it's like a noho hank routine it's like do you want a subway sandwich do you want a building on fire and meanwhile now fast forward to the present you have the investigating the the the, the investigation going on into january 6th and you have republican politicians straight facedly saying normal tourist activity nothing to see here this wasn't an insurrection i have republicans telling me well this wasn't violent and it wasn't armed you have almost 150 police officers injured in the attack so i guess that was peaceful and the nitpicking that they're doing the legalistic nitpicking on armed is well they didn't have lots of automatic weapons but they were still beating people with flagpoles so that contrast is just it's kind of stunning to me what do you make of the fact that there's this sort of i don't know emperor has no clothes quality to this of like it's so blatantly obvious what's going on and yet it seems like if anything republicans are getting away with getting away with making blatantly untrue claims about it and they're not facing enough backlash is is there is this being underreported? Is this being undercriticized? I mean, how on earth can this be? It's 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 shocking. And I mean, I think that there's a terrible culture of just inviting people on to Sunday news shows who are known liars. That that I think is the one of the deepest roots of this whole pathology is that you know certain people are you know because they're powerful, because they're entertaining, because they're good draws, they just keep getting back invited back on Meet the Press. And I really think that the number one thing that we could do to improve the truth quotient in our politics would be for the media to just enforce the norm that if you obviously lie, you don't get invited back. Now, you know, that's actually a great standard. I, I think I'm going to apply it here on Beyond Politics. No liars allowed. All right. L- last last topic I teased before that you've written about the Republican voting restrictions being passed at the state level. I'm going to draw a parallel here that it has an emperor has no clothes quality to it. We all know what's going on. We all know why. We all know it's it's for politics reasons. There's the thinnest of thin excuses being put forward. Oh, it's to protect the integrity of the elections. And look, polls say that Americans are worried about the integrity of elections, mostly because we've been screaming about how worried we are about the integrity of elections. So, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy, ipso facto, we need voter ID. Um, same question. And it's not really a question. This is like the lamest question in the world, but like, what are you seeing on this? Does it also have this strange, you can get away with saying anything quality to it? I think that the media really are enabling all kinds of myths about voting and just taking seriously the idea that there's any threat. We, we ran the cleanest, safest, you know, highest turnout election during a pandemic. Voter fraud is not in, by impersonation is not an issue. And there are things that can be done to improve, the, you know, the to safeguard our election infrastructure from, say, cyber, you know, interference and things like that. But you know, just upgrading. But there, and voter fraud by impersonation is a myth. It's really only about voter suppression, and the media is doing a tremendous disservice to our national dialogue by taking that veneer seriously. Well, you know, you got to report both sides. So and so, it's the it's actually. I mean, you're the journalist, not I, but. You know, it's the lamest thing in the world where you just you just provide the quote. It's like, what's your reaction? And it's like, well, I say this. Well, so and so said this. Well, I you never practice. 
practice that kind of lame journalist you practice that journalism you practice very sharp-eyed very insightful journalism and i really appreciate you sharing it with us here today on beyond politics where can people find you on twitter social media and your writing people can find me on twitter at byerstein b-e-y-e-r-s-t-e-i-n and I have a weekly column at Alternate. If you just Google Beierstein Alternate, it should pop right up. And um, I also do freelancing uh, in various places. I recently had an article in The New Republic about um, debunking the myths of the lab leak of COVID. And I hope you- people will check that out. It, it's uh, your, your work is terrific. And I'm looking forward to reading that myself and having you back on Beyond Politics. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>